Hey everybody, welcome to Grounded Truth, a podcast where we gather some of the world's most influential data scientists, machine learning practitioners, and innovation leaders for conversations on the most relevant topics in AI today. I'm your host, John Singleton, co-founder and head of success here at Watchful, a machine teaching platform for data-centric AI. You can try Watchful for free at www.watchful.io, and please like, subscribe, follow Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you can find podcasts today. I'm super excited to have Kent Anderson joining us today. He's CEO and co-founder at Composable, where they're developing a platform for building autonomous, intelligent autonomous agents. Kent is also a two-times founder, and prior to starting Composable, he spent nearly five years at Microsoft working as a principal program manager for Microsoft AI and Research, machine teaching innovation, and finally, director of autonomous AI adoption. If you want to learn more from Kent, go for it. You can check out his most recent publication, Designing Autonomous AI, a guide for machine teaching on O'Reilly, and we'll provide a link down below in our description. Also joining us is my CEO and co-founder here at Watchful, Cheyenne Mahanti. Welcome, guys. Thanks. Awesome to be here. Yeah. Yes. Thanks for having me again. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're easy. It's harder to get Kent. <laughs> Super excited to have you guys. Um, I think the good place to start is... What is Composable, Kent? Uh, what's the main pain or problem that you're working to solve? So I think we're seeing a lot of really interesting um, action around uh, autonomous agents. I mean, it first captured kind of pop popular culture recently is uh, with autonomous driving. You know, you go yep. into San Francisco and you see, <laughs> you see cars driving around um, and uh, you see some interesting, uh, you know, challenges that that are actually coming up uh, with autonomy in, in cities but also when you have things like auto gpt you know yep. which is you know from a github stars perspective you know the the kind of quickest takeoff of of any open source project in history they say yep. but um but as far as agents or 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 models you know machines that make decisions in real time that's not a new thing um you know, the PID controller was invented in 1912. And, uh, you know, of course, in every factory everywhere, there's there's automation. But the the challenge is more human-like decision-making. And so every time I've ever gone to, you know, a factory or a mine or a warehouse, you've got people there that are either uh, doing things that can't be automated or are stepping in and making decisions when, you know, really more human like decision-making is required, whether that's perception or something like that. And so perception, strategy, looking ahead, forward thinking. Um, and so the idea behind Composable is to allow people who aren't um, AI researchers and experts, uh, who aren't programming at the low, you know, low level of the algorithms of the neural networks, to build intelligent agents from Composable building blocks, uh, from, from various... Uh, algorithms and techniques and and really pulling them together with their subject matter expertise and that's really a lot of what machine teaching is is uh, influencing the the training of agents but other kind of machine learning models with your subject matter expertise and the output is an agent that makes decisions in the real world whether it's uh, you know controlling a drone or a bulldozer or even something virtual like a, a, a factory process or or a logistics process can I ask a quick uh, follow-up, like clarifying question? So um, I, just out of curiosity, like how would you categorize or how would you like sort of describe agents versus generic like machine learning models? 
Um, the, the direction yes. I'm coming from is like, you know, most people are very familiar with supervised machine learning, but not many people are going to be intimately familiar with what makes an agent an agent. Yeah, thanks for asking that, actually. I, to me, there's a big distinction between perception and action. So, you know, as humans, we do both and, and uh, we do them both so well, it can sometimes be difficult to tease them apart. For example, when you're driving a car, you're obviously visualizing the road and, you know, the, the car and in relation to the road. And then you're taking action, you know, on the steering wheel and the, the, the brake pedal and the accelerator. But really, I do think fundamentally perception and action are different things. Um, and so perceiving what's happening versus doing something um, are fundamentally different concerns. And a lot of machine learning is actually perception. So supervised learning as it's used for computer vision, that's perception. You know, is, is that set of pixels have represent a dog or a bird or or the letter a that's really perceiving what's going on it's not really doing anything now a prediction i i consider that to be perception too you know like when a a farmer uh goes out into the field and she licks her finger and you know gets an idea of the wind speed and direction and looks at the shape of the clouds and the color of the sky that's really a form of advanced perception Mm -hmm. um uh, perceiving whether there's going to be a rainstorm or not now some people will say, oh, well, you can use supervised learning uh, for for taking action. Well, kind of, uh, but not really. If, for example, my weather prediction is very, very, very certain, like it's 99% likely to rain or 1% likely to rain, then you can attach a simple rule that says, well, take your umbrella if the prediction, you know, if, if the, it's predicted to rain. But the take your umbrella action is not actually coming from the, the perception. It's actually a separate concern. Now, in most cases where the perception is more nuanced, like it may be 40% likely to rain, then the take your umbrella action is actually a lot more of a, uh, takes a lot more intelligence, you know, to, to really make that decision. So I really, to me, it boils down to the difference between perception and action. Got it. So is, is the argument that like agents blend perception and action together where classical supervised techniques kind of only focus on the perception and stub action as a separate system or a separate concern altogether? Yes. And then the third category I'd give is, you know, traditionally called controllers, um, they just take action, right? So, you know, a, a PID controller, an MPC controller is basically calculating what to do using, you know, a mathematical model of the uh, of the system or differential equations, et cetera. Uh, and there's, for all intents and purposes, for the purposes of this discussion, very limited or no perception at all. Got it. Okay. So so then I, I guess like an obvious question to follow up with is like, what's the value of blending both together versus keeping the system separate? Yeah. Let me give you a couple examples. So yeah. um, most of my time at Microsoft, uh, uh, I was working on industrial use cases, you know, so we're, uh, I went to a steel mill in, uh, in Indiana and they, uh, the executives asked me to walk up and down the line where they make rolled steel. The last step in rolling steel is it, it looks literally like a gigantic tissue paper roll or toilet paper roll of steel that's going into furnaces and getting tempered and getting, you know, stretched and pulled and different things are happening to it. And then it gets coiled, coiled up and it's used to make, for example, uh, doors for automobiles or, you know, HVAC ducting, et cetera. And they asked me to walk them down the line and figure out uh, what 
would be some good use cases for an intelligent agent. And I interviewed the, uh, the operators that were sitting in these control rooms called pulpits. And the one that I identified was galvanizing the steel with zinc. So you dip the zinc in a pot, you dip the steel in a pot of molten zinc, and then it comes up. And the idea is you have to make, in order to sell it, the, the coating has to be the right thickness, but it also has to be the right uniformity. It can't be too wavy. And uh, what was really difficult was they, they said the majority of the steel used to be all for the same application, doors for the big three automakers. But now there's so many diverse applications, there's a lot more thicknesses of the coating and of the steel. And so I said, I was asking the guy, well, what's difficult about this? And he said, well, what's difficult is, and he had all these sensors, you know, showing the, the waviness profile and the thickness. But then he said, look at that. And he pointed out the pulpit window and you could see patterns, visual patterns on the uh, steel as it was coming out with the, the molten zinc still shiny on it. And he said, that's a fish pattern. That's a rainbow pattern. And he said, unless you can look at that pattern and identify uh, what you need to do or how you need to change the controls based on the pattern that's showing up, then you won't be able to do this in an expert way with just these readings. Mm. I'll give you another example. Um, I was working with a company, NOV, National Oil Well Varco, and they make oil field equipment like drills and things. And we were talking to an expert machinist. And I said, well, what makes you an expert? And he said, I can, I can hear what's happening. So he said, there's automation software that the, the engineers use. And then everyone who's not an expert like me will take the sensor readings to determine whether the spinning tool that's cutting the metal is doing it well. But there's 16 different sounds that will get made. One is called chatter. There's a bunch of other sounds. And he said, if you can't hear the sound, then you're not going to get expert control of that machine. And so we actually built an AI that had a supervised learning module that would identify nine different sound patterns that were being made, pass that to the deep reinforcement learning model, and the deep reinforcement learning model would take action based on all the sensor readings plus the sound classification. And that's what got it to expert control. Got it. Okay, that, that's super interesting. And I guess like, you know, these two use cases are very industrial heavy. I'm curious about your vision of agents for like, I guess, broad question is like, do you feel that agents should be sequestered to industrial use cases? Or do you see sort of like a big wide world of agent possibilities? It's a big wide world. So the reason why um, many folks are focusing on industrial or more sequestered use cases, let's just say sequestered, use your, your term, is because autonomy needs to mature in order to function uh, function very, very well in more open and unconstrained environments. So if you look for constrained environments, like for example, um, autonomous driving inside of a warehouse is a lot more straightforward, safe, successful than autonomous driving out you know, on the streets of San Francisco or, um, you know, because there's so many other things that can happen in these uncontrolled environments. So I think what we're going to see is the boundaries getting bigger as the autonomy gets more and more competent. There is another way to sequester the autonomy to be successful besides putting it in a factory or, you know, the walls. You can also 
limit its scope. So you're seeing actually a lot of car companies now that are uh, releasing pieces of autonomous driving. And they have different names for it. But you're basically talking about lanes change maneuvers. You're talking about, um, you know, hands-free driving in certain situations. But they're not saying what some car companies have said. This is, you know, level four or level five autonomy. And, you know, it it's completely automatic self-driving. And I, that's a, that's actually, to me, an effective way to sequester, to be able to say, um, like, you've probably seen some of the videos uh, on YouTube where someone will be driving in their Tesla and then something crazy would happen on the road, like, you know, concrete, you know, blocks fall off of a truck. And then the Tesla makes some amazing, insane driving maneuver that you'd have to be like practically a, a race car driver to execute. And then they're, you know, the person's emotional and saying this thing just saved my life. So you could say you could bill Tesla autopilot as um, expert driving maneuvers when you need it. That's one way to say it instead of saying it's you know, a completely autonomous driver. And that would kind of sequester it and help people um, keep it in a box, uh, which would potentially keep you from, you know, either overstating capabilities or failing in certain situations. Yeah, that that makes good sense. And I, I guess like, so on the, on the flip side of, you know, some of these stories where, you know, the Tesla swerves out of the way at just the right moment and, you know, you see this amazing save, uh, you obviously have the other side of the coin, which is yes. there are absolutely crashes. You know, there are Hitting cases someone. where, yeah, you know, like like there will be situations where perhaps a human driver would have done better. I So I guess the question here is like, how do we reason about agents when perhaps the cost of making a mistake is extremely Very high? high. Is that is that an engineering uh, sort of like an engineering discipline type of thing, or is that something that can be innately built into agents themselves? I, th I think it's actually both. There's, there's three things I want to say about that. That's very very uh, insightful question. First of all, um, if you look at the data, or at least some of the data, you know, Cruz, the CEO of Cruz, published uh, some data or, or highlighted some data on one of his social media accounts that I saw, and it was basically showing the safety and incidents of accidents of humans, the average human, uh, compared to the cruise cars. And what you saw is in three different scenarios, and I can't remember what the scenarios were, um, it actually crashed less than humans. So part of it is our, our tendency to, you know, treat AI like science fiction and, you know, godlike, you know, kind of thing, where we actually don't put on the news every time a human crashes. Um, and so we, we hold th this autonomy to a different standard. So even if it actually is safer, which according to the data that I saw in the location that the data was taken, um, it actually was safe. So there, there's the perception, you know, the di difference in perception there. But I do think it's a it's an engineering exercise. And that's that's what you see. Like, I, I don't know how Tesla Autopilot was built. But for example, when you see like Boston Dynamics at, uh, Atlas Robot. There's actually very little, quote unquote, modern AI, you know, deep learning and all that. It's a very highly engineered system. That's control theory and optimization, you know, put in, you know, just the right way and engineered in very specific ways. Now, I think that you can get the best of both worlds. And this is what we're trying to do with Composable. And this is what I, what I try to describe in my book, 
on machine teaching is that if you treat this autonomy at a skill level, uh, then you can use the right AI and controls and optimization and rules techniques to execute each skill. So I'll give you an example. If you're flying a drone, let's say you're trying to autonomously control the drone. One of the skills you need to master is to be able to maintain stability. Now there's reasons why you might go unstable. You know, the wind might blow, there might, you have to might swerve to avoid an obstacle, you know, things like that. But st stabilizing is a skill. Very, very separate concern is the skill of landing. Very, very separate concern is the skill of moving to a point. So I think if, uh, from an engineering perspective, if you think of decomposing these uh, autonomy into these different skills or strategies, then you're going to be able to better engineer and better mix different techniques and uh, whether it's quote unquote modern AI or whether it's something traditional like a rule set. And you can say, when you're in a very safety critical situation, use these rules. In fact, uh, Apollo, I think it was Apollo, one of the self-driving um, open source libraries that people you know use very much in academia to, to demonstrate self-driving cars. And it's, I think it's a, been around for a while. If you look like deep, deep, deep down in the logic, there are rules in there. And there's rules that say, if this happens, just do that. That's basically you engineering the system to say, safety skills need to be hard-coded or programmed with rules. Nuance perception needs to be you know, learned, that kind of thing. Got it. Um, and I, I would say that it's really rare that we get a guest on the podcast that already has machine teaching in their byline. So <laughs> I would be remiss uh, to miss the opportunity to ask you to define it. So can, maybe just for our audience, can you define machine teaching in your own words? Sure. First, let me tackle teaching. Um, nice. Uh, my, my father was a teacher, a uh, very accomplished teacher. And so I have kind of these teaching sensibilities, even though I've never been a teacher. But I think that teaching is drawing a box around or, or uh, biasing the learning. And by creating these skills. So if I'm teaching my son to play basketball, um, then I'm not going to just give him a dime or a cookie every time he puts the basketball in the hoop. And that's all I'm going to say to him. I'm going to teach him what the jump shot is. And I'm going to say, listen, you put the ball right here and then you push it out of your hand. And it's people get confused. They think that by teaching him the technique of the jump shot that I'm limiting his ability to become a great basketball player. I'm actually not. Now that would be true if we hadn't as, you know, humans greatly practiced and explored basketball enough to know that this jump shot is one of the best skills you can learn to accurately shoot the ball into the hoop. Now there's a lot of different ways to shoot the jump shot. You know, there's, you know, you can fade away and it can be down, down, it could be up, it could be quick release, it'd be slow release. So you're, you're actually drawing a box around the space that's going to be explored. And you're saying, hey, learner, I don't want you to try anything outside of this box right now. Maybe later I'll teach you another skill like the layup or the hook shot. But for now, I want you to stay inside this box. And you can explore and practice and figure out how to do this skill, how to execute this skill well in a variety of different situations. And so I'm explicitly saying, do not try a bunch of things that are not going to lead to success. 
That to me, that's the fundamentals of what teaching is. Bounding, exploration, and practice, guiding practice. So machine teaching is doing that for machines. That that's that's a good explanation. I I think Probably we think about I think we've had than the thing well, we've given. I, I want to counter with a question to you because you have a machine teaching company. How do. would you define machine teaching? I, I think that we would define it much in the same way. Um, the the analogy that I give is teaching someone how to do math. You wouldn't give them just a bunch of examples of, you know, multiplication tables and be like, figure out how to do multiplication, right? You might give them that as supplement, but really fundamentally, you're teaching them the rule. You're teaching them, here's mechanically how you perform multiplication and here's reinforcement where we show you a bunch of examples where this is true. And I see machine teaching in our world very much the same way, where mm. instead of hoping that the student reverse engineers the same thing that's in your head, you should just give whatever's in your head and supplement that in whatever way that you need to, to reinforce that point to the machine. So yes. mechanically for us, all that means is that you can create, you know, not rules, but heuristics that predict something in a, you know, relatively consistent way. You're essentially taking what you're doing in your brain and you're applying it in a programmatic way. Uh, and then, you know, the machine will come back with potentially questions or suggestions and you're either confirming or denying that you're basically reinforcing that rule as time goes on um, or reinforcing the things that it's learned about that particular heuristic. Um, I think so, that's very, yeah. I like that definition very much. And I think it's compatible with how skills evolve. Yep. And I talk about this in the book. I discovered this as I was one uh, researching, you know, machine teaching. I was researching machine teaching from an education perspective and how do teachers teach skills. And, and I was studying folks like um, Stuart and Hubert Dreyfus who built a skill acquisition model that was very much debated and refuted. But then I was uh, simultaneously going into all these industrial settings and seeing how people teach each other these high value skills, these like priceless skills. If you don't do it right, you could die. If you don't do it right, you could lose a million dollars, that kind of thing. And what I realized was that humans almost always abbreviate skills and and pass, teach them as a rule. And what I mean by that is mm -hmm. a skill is this nuanced, like crazy multidimensional thing. And then you dehydrate it, kind of like you freeze dried it. And then you hand it to the other human as an expert rule. I'll give you a couple examples. Protect your queen. You know, in chess, they say protect your queen. Now, your chess teacher doesn't actually mean that you should always protect your, your queen. He actually dehydrated this you know, the, this skill or set of strategies and said, and handed it to you as an expert rule. And now he infects, expects you to inflate it or rehydrate it by practicing in different situations. So then you're going to practice and you're going to realize, oh, this is a situation where I absolutely want to sacrifice my queen. This is a situation where I'd never want to sacrifice my queen. And then you get, then you re rehydrate that skill into this thing. Um, I experienced this when I learned to play Texas Hold'em poker. This is a long time ago. Um, but <laughs> around, Oh man, I can't remember what year it was, but there was kind of a craze where it seemed like everybody had their own Texas Hold'em, you know, poker game, at least in, in the Bay Area in California where I live. And I went to this game and I would spend a little money and you could win a little bit of money. And so I read this book by, I think the gentleman's name is Doyle Brunson. Doyle Brunson. Doyle Brunson. And he basically said, 
here's the top 10 hands of poker. Here's and this is the rule he gave. If if you're dealt a top 10 hand, play it. If not, fold it. Period. Now, he was not intending and his book was not about just following that rule. But I followed that rule for a long time at that poker game until I started to build the nuance. Oh, I actually don't like Ace-King that much, even though it's statistically the second highest hand in, in poker, if I can remember correctly. Um, uh, there's a certain pairs hand that I really like. Um, uh, and then it, you'd have to read it by the situation. Based on what other people are doing, certain hands become more, more or less attractive, and now I'm building that very nuanced skill. But it was handed to me as this dehydrated packet of expert knowledge. Yeah, what, what's that famous Einstein quote? If you can't explain it simply, you don't know it. You don't understand it well enough. That's it, almost uh, exactly it. If you can't, uh, if you cannot explain something simply, you don't understand it well enough. And that's one of my favorite quotes for that exact yeah. reason. It 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 seems just like a very obvious bastion for something like machine teaching, where you are, like you said, trying to you know take something that's fairly amalgous fairly complicated, kind of like a multi-dimensional space. And then you're trying to, as, as you put it, dehydrate it into something that, you know, you can actually serialize something that you can give to someone and just be like, here's this thing. It's a good yeah. starting point. At least it's not going to give you all of the nuance that, you know, the hydrated version of that information would give you, but this is like the the building block for you to rehydrate. And maybe the reason why we do that, I don't know why we do this, but maybe the re part of the reason why we do this is because it would be almost impossible to hand over that completely hydrated skill. Yeah. As, I was just about to ask, do you think that the ability to articulate the nuance over time is a hard requirement? Um, this is, this is uh, hotly debated. Uh, some educators and kind of teaching experts would say it's not. And they would put the emphasis on the learner exploring. Yeah. You know, good learners explore. I move the needle slightly to the other side where I say good teachers teach and good teachers know what to teach at which time. So if you're to, so I'll switch the analogy to like the game of football, American football has huge amounts of strategy in it. Many, 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 many strategies. And so you don't get great coaches teaching American football, I mean to youngsters, by letting them know about all the strategy at once. They're, they're layering the strategy based on the, the skills, maybe some innate, some not, of that the learners came in with, the exploration of the learners, and then they're saying, okay, now I'll teach you this. Now I'll teach you this. I think it happens in chess. I think it happens in music. I think it happens in a lot of different things. But I think it's both. John, I think, it's, it. I think it's both. I, I want to make this really concrete. Um, so, you know, like t today we have LLMs as sort of like the new hotness that everyone is talking about. Um, we've seen things like, quote unquote, agents, um, which I think might be slightly different to the types of agents you might be imagining or maybe not. Um, so I'm, I'm just curious, like tie this together for me. Like what does a world of machine teaching, LLMs and agents look like nice. like paint me kind of what the future looks like in your mind i love i love it i love love the question and it goes to the earlier question with which also is you know what kinds of things can agents do because agents can do very virtual things you know you can have a stock trading agent that doesn't really do quote unquote anything in the physical world like um even though it can have very real world implications things like warehouses are the same uh thing but llms are extremely powerful 
from the perspective of agents, um, they are, they're not pure decision makers. They're actually more, my, my opinion of an LLM is it's this really powerful set of perception. It's really perceiving what the entire internet said about something. Um, so getting an, using an LLM by itself as an agent is kind of like asking the internet, asking Reddit, you know, how to do, and then fill in the blank, drive a truck or whatever, and then doing exactly what it says. Now for more common tasks where there's more expertise out there on the internet, you're going to get better results, like how to, you know, book a vacation or book a good vacation. But the more specialized the skill, the worse it's going to be. So for example, and this is a a big misconception about um, expertise, is we assume that the intelligence is the expertise. It's not. Because I can be an expert chess player, a amateur jazz musician, a reasonable writer, but a very, very, very poor tango dancer. I'm just, I'm just as intelligent. It's the same intelligence across that spectrum, but my competence can be very, very different. So no one's going to hire me as a long haul truck driver because I don't have that skill. So my vision is that LLMs can be extremely powerful when you combine them with other decision-making techniques. Let's talk about, you know, stock trading, for example. And I have worked on trading agents before LLMs, you know, in their current form existed. And if you go, you know, to a, uh, a company, whether it's a bank or an investment bank that does trading, they're going to have lots and lots of strategies. I worked with one company and they said, we have 110 proprietary strategies that we use. And we built AI with deep reinforcement learning that learned a few of those strategies. You can also program some of those strategies. But the hardest part about the stock market is perception, reading the market. That's where an LLM as part of that agent could be brilliant. Because an LLM can read the news and say, based on what happened with the war on Ukraine yesterday, I think this is how it's going to affect the market. Based on what you know, Elon Musk and Warren Buffett said yesterday on Twitter, I think this is how it's going to affect the market. These are the kinds of um, things that current before LLMs, like really only humans could do. So you could add this really interesting perception, language perception layer to your agent that had learned, you know, these strategies through deep reinforcement learning and programming and optimization um, to make a much more human-like, much more powerful agent. That's actually my my vision. That that makes good sense. I mean, like I I I agree with you that LLMs are this potentially like huge, very robust perception layer, so to speak, to that plugs into a lot of different downstream systems. Maybe just really quickly so that I get a good sense in my head. Talk to me a little bit about how concretely I might build something using Composable. You mentioned that um, like I, as a user of this system, shouldn't have to be super technical or perhaps not like at least a machine learning expert. Yes. I might know, I assume, some Python, and I'm a software engineer at a minimum, yes. maybe, or at maybe a maximum. Like, Talk to me about how I should think about Composable. Like, Do I have to know things about reinforcement learning specifically? And then maybe get into like, is this sort of like a one size fits all model situation? Like, how should I reason about composable in this world where perhaps the perception is being done by an LLM and I want an agent? Like, talk to me about that. It's great. It's great. So 
first you should think about it um, composable as it stands right now. It's, it's a Python SDK, right? So it's it's a you can build these agents in Python. Now we've abstracted away a lot of the things like the mechanics of the deep reinforcement learning algorithm, uh, you know, the, the DevOps like the containers and you know the container orchestration things like that. But the first thing you need to you need to train an agent is you need a simulator, and that simulation could be a supervised learning you know uh, uh, model, but it needs to predict what will happen when you do something. So let's take a robotic arm. You got a robotic arm that's going to you know pick up objects and place them on another. That's very very common task in, in research and practice. Um, you need a, a simulation model that will say, well, if I actuate these seven joints in this way then what position and, and acceleration and velocity will the robot be in? Um, and that there's lots of simulation packages out there, but there's also lots of ways to take data from a robot, for example, and use it to build, use supervised learning and other techniques to build a model. You take that model and you, um, you register it, make it conform to some very specific specifications, and then the composable platform can grab that model, stuff it in containers, and replicate it. Um, on the cloud or on your servers, because you need the ability to practice a lot. So if you've ever seen a chess master playing like 10 people at the same time, that's what it's doing. But it might be 100. It might be 1,000. So it gets lots and lots of experience. That's the first thing you do with Composable, is you get your simulation registered so we can manipulate it. And then you go in and you create an agent. Now, the, the building blocks for agents are skills. So you have to define skills and scenarios. So let's take this robotic arm. Um, there's a, a paper, maybe we could put a link to it, uh, Dexterous ma Manipulation uh, Using Concept Reinforcement Learning that some of uh, my colleagues when I was at, at Bonsai before it was acquired by Microsoft uh, put out. And, and they, they designed an AI that um, did this pick, this grasp and stack task by defining a reach skill. Reaching is like, you know, extending your arm from your body. Uh, moving is like a lateral motion like this. Then you orient, or the orient skill orients your hand around the, the block. It's really a wrist motion. And then the grasp is grasping with your fingers, and then the stack is lifting up. And for reaching and moving, those are very well defined in robotics and in, uh, in what's called inverse kinematics. It's basically calculations. You, you don't need machine learning to do that. So uh, in Composable, you can define two skills, one for move, and one for reach that are inverse kinematic functions in Python. So you can define a skill in Composable in one of two ways. You can either learn it with reinforcement learning, or you can pass in an arbitrary Python function that will execute that skill. So that function could be an optimization routine. It could be a set of rules you programmed, or in this case, it could be inverse kinematics. Um, now, orienting your hand around a block, grasping a block, especially of different shapes, sizes, different positions, that's that's difficult. So we might use reinforcement learning to find three skills for orient, grasp, and stack, and set trainable equals true. That tells the system, you need to go learn this with deep reinforcement learning. Um, and then there's one additional skill, a what we call a selector. A selector skill is a supervisor that decides when you should be using each of those skills. So when should you... Start. When should you be reaching? When should you be moving? When should you stop orienting your hand around the block? And when should you grasp the block? And then you can orchestrate those skills in the selector. You, you might say the skills need to operate in sequence. 
So there's one way to do this where you say it would look very mechanical, but you'd say, I want you to reach first, then I want you to move, then when you're done moving, I want you to grasp, then I want you to stack. In real life, you'd probably be reaching and moving, kind of reach, move, reach, move, reach, 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 move, move, move in this kind of smooth thing. And when you're close, then you orient, grasp, and stack. But you can manipulate or dictate the orchestration of the order that these skills should be and whether the skills need to be in a loop. So if you're doing a bipedal walker, for example, you've got to lift your leg, plant your leg, swing your leg, but then it then it goes into a cycle. You have to repeat that cycle. So in less than 100 lines of code, you're going to be able to define your agent, define your skills, and then the third thing is define the scenarios that it needs to operate in. We, um, this is actually really important, and I want to get your take about scenarios from a data perspective um, in a minute, but from an agent perspective, scenarios represent the different situations. Um, you know, is the is the thing you're grasping and picking up heavy? Is it light? Is it round? Is it slippery? Is it big? Is it far away? Is it close? And then you define your scenarios using ranges of parameters and the AI will be forced to practice in each of those scenarios to make sure you succeed. Yeah, that, that's super intriguing. Um... In terms of my take on scenarios, um, I, I, I have lots of thoughts. Um, I, I always like thinking about how software testing has evolved over the years. Mm -hmm. um, unit tests are obviously like kind of everyone's bread and butter, but they're really not that great from a true testing perspective. They're what great from that? like... Yeah, they're, they're great from like a documentation perspective and just like if I'm another engineer and I just want to make sure that like my change doesn't break something obvious, like they're great. And maybe I want to know how something is typically used, like they're great for that. But they're really bad for cases where there is potentially a lot of room for error and unknown possibilities in terms of like introduction of error. Um, so I think of robotics as like a very obvious case, you know, to your point. There could be lots of degrees of heaviness. There could be a lot of degrees of slipperiness. There could be a lot of degrees of shapes and just right. like dimensionality. Um, there's a whole bunch of reasons why some part of that process would fail. And I think like, you know, the physical world is rife with this, but so is the virtual world. So as we think okay. about just pure data, um, there's an infinite number of ways that a human being can write some amount of text. Uh, mm -hmm. And therefore, there's an infinite number of ways that a system designed to classify or segment that text that, that, that text could fail. So in cases like that, um, I draw a lot of inspiration from techniques like fuzzing, where you have some amount of bounds, you know, you, you have you have some some universe of known possibilities. Yes. Or at least some gates. Um, you mentioned, you know, ranges, for instance. I think that's like mm -hmm. a good way to put it. Um, if you're familiar with like Haskell's quick check as an example, like it will try a whole bunch of different, you know, somewhat random uh, combinations, as long as you define what the shape of data you're trying to pass in is. Um, I think you, that there is room for invigorating an approach like that with some statistical bounds that are learned. Yes. So in, in here's industrial like, engineering, we call that particular uh, thing you called fuzzing, um, we call that a design of experiments. And in a design oh, of experiments, you, you go through and you decide your ranges and then you shut down the plant and you program in all the ranges and then you run the plant through these randomized scenarios 
So you can see what happened. Collect data and see what happened. Yeah, I, I think so. In, in my mind, you know, whether we're talking about agents or just the perception side mm -hmm. um, of of kind of like the equation, I think something like that needs to exist where we can say, look, here's what normal looks like according to the data that we have, right. and here's what we know to be kind of like possibilities. Here's what you know the ranges are, so to speak, and I want you to to show me where my assumption fails where does my perception layer stop being correct with yes. what shape of data or with what shape of input and then i want to work backwards from there to make that system more robust i love the fact that you're using the term shape because um topography maps and you know geography have been used as a um as an analogy and in a very appropriate analogy for um, state-space exploration for learning yep. itself and for optimization for a very long time. And I think it's a very appropriate way to think about learning. Learning is exploring some unknown space and you can't get around it. Um, all data is, is record of previous exploration. Yep. And here's the problem. If you don't keep track of those scenarios you're talking about, your exploration may not be complete enough, which is why, you know, I was talking to uh, a visual effects expert who works in Hollywood films. And he was saying he was using uh, uh, LLMs like stable diffusion, mid journey to um, create some images. And he said, when I was working with African-American generating images for African-American women that were, uh, I think he said teenagers to 30 years old, no problem. Uh, much, much older, 70 years old and up, no problem. But middle-aged African-American women, he said, he, he, he couldn't really do it effectively, but that's because the data didn't fully represent the state space. There just aren't, it's not there. Yep. Totally. So, so what do you do about that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so there, there's obviously like a ton of research in the space, right? Like there's, there's generative techniques for synthetic data, data generation. There's uh, lots of different ways that you can do like data augmentation to take pre-existing data and just sort of mutate it enough to where you can get reasonable coverage. Hmm. Um, right now, my strong opinion that is loosely held is that this requires a human in the loop in some capacity with really clever tooling. You need to be able to show a human where the gaps likely are, but a machine yes. doesn't have enough context by definition to fill those gaps. So you need to surface issues uh, proactively and have humans fill in those gaps in whatever way that makes sense. I agree I with like, you yeah. very, I very strongly <laughs> agree with you. <laughs> um, be, to me, those are tools for teachers. Yeah, yeah, totally. Because you're saying to the teacher, um, here's the, and this, the, the other, um, really convenient, uh, thing about working in the industrial space is you have longtime experts who have explored the space for decades. So you have people that will, when you, I would go into that, actually that same steel mill I was telling you about. And I said, okay, well, what are the strategies you use for, for controlling this equipment? And they filled two whiteboards with yeah. strategies that they use and teach, but that's all from previous exploration. Like you don't just get that for free. You have to explore. Um, but if you could say to that expert, Hey, I analyzed the data and here's the graphs that show these seven skills. And they might say, oh, these five skills, I know exactly what they are. And they, they would name them and label them. But they, they might say, these skills, two skills I've never seen before. I don't know what they are. 
Or this skill, we've always thought that there was a skill like this out there. We've never known how to use it, so we never used it. Right. Yeah. So I am not a reinforcement learning expert, so I apologize this question is dumb. But one of the most, I, uh, I sat in on a uh, talk by the Alpha Star team. Uh, this is my first exposure to reinforcement learning. And one of the things that really stuck with me out of that, I, it, I think it leads very well to what we're talking about fuzzing and kind of these uh, defining scenarios and ranges is diversity. Uh, you know, there was this moment where they had uh, 32 or whatever the number of agents was trained, uh, optimized on basically this same set of rewards. What they found is they would never get an optimal strategy out of it because they had a homogenous group. And I think, you know, kind of in hindsight, it's somewhat obvious. But what that what they did find was that by introducing degrees of diversity on quote unquote, like uh, on on basically on reward functions effectively, they were able to converge on an optimal strategy and eventually got Alpha Star, which was better than humans, yada, yada, the whole story. And do you think that that, and I think this is very apt for the LLMs. There's a leak yesterday or the day before about how uh, GPT-4 is really just like 16 uh, GPT-4-esque 111 billion parameter models uh, effectively acting, acting as a mixture of experts. Um, do you believe that maybe, and maybe it's by application, that there's like one agent for a, you said like a skill or maybe an application to rule them all? Or will is diversity kind of a requirement in taking approaches and maybe and particularly as the uh, problem space becomes more open-ended. We get out of industrial where it's like, did this coding stick or not? It's a, almost a one or zero. I'm sure there's some degrees within there, but did sure. it work or did it not? But uh, in the realm of like, you know, natural language or dealing with humans or anything that uh, where the line between executing on the skill uh, has a lot of variation and a big range of what could be considered acceptable from far expert to it just did the job. It's a beautifully nuanced question. Um, so first, the mixture of experts. Those folks that programmed that or that built that mixture of experts, they were practicing machine teaching. That's what machine teaching is. They were identifying um, expert LLMs that were particularly specialized to specific types of data. And I don't know what the, the there's some huge space. And they said, this region, this, you know, looks different fundamentally, mathematically than this region. And so, and and then they had what we would call at, at Composable a selector, you know, this um, uh, this supervisor that's responsible for blending. Now, one of the things that deep reinforcement learning is really, really, really good at, and, and they didn't use deep reinforcement learning in the, uh, the mixture of agents, even though ChatGPT does use deep reinforcement learning for human feedback. Um, deep reinforcement learning is really, really good at blending, at blending together this kind of ensemble by saying, use this at this time and use this at this time. But... The, um, the thing that I think is really interesting is when you translate the term skill to a, a word like strategy, where a strategy is basically a, a labeled skill for use in a particular scenario. It, that, that's how I define a strategy. It's a, it's a human readable, human labelable skill, human labeled skill that you use in a particular situation. Folks often, especially with optimization backgrounds, talk about optimal policies. When you're dealing with, especially adversarial situations, you know, the stock market, chess, et cetera, go, um, and lots of driving, there is no optimal strategy. One, because the state space is too big. It's, there's, there's a good chess strategy, there's a clever chess strategy, but there is no like one 
you know, best strategy. But the the strategies that will be effective also change over time because the adversary changes over time. Um, so, for example, there's this great um, article about comparing business strategy to video games. And in, in for gamers, which I'm not, but there's there's often a swarm strategy. A swarm strategy is you know many 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 units, and they go and uh, and then but then there's also the opposite is kind of a tank strategy, which is you got this huge powerful unit which can absorb a lot of damage and and um, and deal out a lot of damage. And they compared that to, for example. Amazon and Shopify, where where Amazon is the tank, you know, in e-commerce and Shopify, you know, they they help folks create, I don't even know, maybe millions, hundreds, thousands, millions of stores. And in in the article, they said swarms in video games and, in, you know, swarms as a concept win over time. So if you give a swarm a long enough time, it will overpower any tank. And if you give Shopify enough time, it will overpower Amazon. So there's what is the optimal strategy? Well, it depends on how far you've evolved and it depends on what your, your adversary has done. So I think it's actually much more about using machine teaching to properly define or cleverly define some reusable modular skills and assembling them together in different ways so that you, so that your agent or maybe a person in collaboration with an agent can come up with unique strategies that improvise to the new situations. Yep. Yeah. Like this really just resonates with me because I, I, I really feel in the, in the world of chat GPT and this rise of LLMs, AGI is this big hot topic. Everybody says we must get to AGI, et cetera. And I honestly think that AGI is almost like a non-goal in my mind because we can get 80% of the way there through decomposing a task. Just like you said at the beginning, kind of going full circle here, it's an engineering problem to break down tasks that we can effectively teach to a skill and then maybe apply some heuristic bound in the form of a rule or, you know, soft in our world, a heuristic called hinters uh, effectively to the, you know, uh, to your task. Um, but I think people would be, you know, it's like 80% of ML projects fail. Why? Largely because they're not doing the work to decompose into what's actually going to be effective when, you know, as the first salesperson in the company and talking to a thousand data scientists, I can tell you the first thing out of most people's mouth is they want a Turing prize or just AGI in a box. Do the thing for me. I want the box that does the mission yes. thing. I've found that over and over and over, John, where, and I don't mean to belittle data science or disrespect data science in any way, but data science can become toxic yeah. when it attempts to solve problems without any interest or understanding of the subject matter expertise. In other right. words, the previous exploration of the space. Yep. Yeah, I, I think that's a beautiful way to put it. Uh, inheriting that knowledge, getting an understanding of those base heuristics. And then I think adding in that key element of diversity, you know, going back to your example of like mid-journey and stable diffusion, that's a diversity problem, diversity in data. Do you have the conceptual space applied? And then it, like Shine brought up, have, having the necessity of a human basically check the state space you know, validate what could be missing. This is a problem, flag it, and then develop a, you know, series of tasks or solutions to address that problem of lack of diversity to then adapt to that task. So that, I think that definitely resonates. Um, and it's really fascinating. So I have one question before we uh, roll out. Uh, what, is there anywhere where reinforcement learning falls short? Do you see an app, a series of applications or like what wouldn't I look at composable for kind of going at the opposite end and so, let you go finish on a positive. So you should know would you that look at composable for the idea of composable is that regardless of the decision, you can build an agent out of 
any decision-making technique. So use reinforcement learning when, when you should. Use optimization. Use you know genetic algorithms. Use LLMs. There, are, each type of decision-making algorithm has its own personality. Reinforcement learning is terrible. I mean, terrible with constraints. With many and varied constraints, it does not want to follow rules. It wants to explore and find creative solutions. It's good at blending. It's good at strategy, which is what makes really, really good at these um, these selectors. Um, but there's other techniques like that are the opposite personality, like model predictive control, which is basically a control theory, decision-making uh, controller that looks ahead based on a accurate simulation model, tries actions, and then only does things that fall within the where the results fall within the constraints. It's a rule follower. It will never do something that violates constraints, but it's not good at finding creative solutions, which is why in factories, MPC almost always has a human being directing it. So you can build an agent, and I've done this before, where you combine the two. You take the unruly um, you know, strategist and the rule follower and put them together and have the strategist set the direction and the rule follower do the execution. But if you take reinforcement learning and try to have it do the whole thing, you'll, you'll have something you can't even deploy because it's doing so many things that are, you know, unsafe, you know, out of bounds or whatever. Absolutely. And with, with that lack of observability, it's always a, it's always a question mark and how safe can that be? Um, Kent's man, this was so much fun. I really enjoyed this. Uh, you know, I don't know if you know this, but our, our mission here at Watchful is to increase the number of machine teachers in the world. And it's so exciting to talk to you because I, I see you doing that, embodying that to the nth degree with uh, Composable. And I'm really excited to see how the, the project involves. Um, anything you want to plug, socials, uh, website, find Composable anywhere you're talking, it's coming up. You can find Composable at composable.io. Um, the, uh, check out the book, but um, I, I just got to say it, it was a really nice conversation. I look forward to seeing what you guys will be doing in machine teaching in the future. Absolutely. I look forward to many more conversations as well. This has been so much fun. Uh, Shine, thanks for joining. Kent's of really course. enjoyed it. Uh, everybody listening, thanks so much. This has been Grounded Truth. Uh, again, my name is John Singleton, co-founder and head of success here at Watchful. You can find us at www.watchful.io. And for the links to the papers and uh, the book, Kenson's book, as well as Composable, you can look below. We'll add them to the description. Thanks so much, everybody. Really enjoyed the chat and uh, talk soon. Bye.